0: Welcome to Europa-Rama, the border-breaking podcast about science fiction and the future of Europe, brought to you by Are We Europe? I'm Giuseppe Porcaro. I'm Alberto Cottica. I'm Yudhanger Vigiradbo. And for this season, Europa-Rama has joined forces with Edge Riders and their Science Fiction Economics Lab, as they had an incredible idea. Instead of writing academic papers, they decided to channel out-of-the-box economic thinking around building the fictional world of Witness. In each episode, we've been exploring a part of this universe as it has been created, and you've been learning how you can contribute to its making by participating in this open source wiki that is available and which the link you will find in the show notes. For those who may have joined the podcast only now, Witness is a fictional city floating in a post-climate change planet Earth, where people are organized by district, each experimenting a different social contract and a different economic model. But all of them connected by being constrained in that floating space. For this final episode of this season, we are going to get back to Yuda and to the history of WITNESS and to what is bringing and putting these different districts together after all our visits to the districts that so far have been developed. Yuda, so we've been traveling to Hige, we've been traveling to the Covenant, we've been traveling around the different parts of this floating island. Let's go back uh, in this kind of more bird's eye view and understand a bit better how this came together. We've been discovering bits and bytes of the history of this place, but we haven't really got through a sort of uh, coherent narrative about what has been going on. Why these districts are like the ones that we see today, and what used to be this place before it was breaking up in different almost universes.
1: This started with the Edge Riders call, saying that we want to be interested in building worlds that explore economic structures. So the spec, if you think about it, is we want to be able to explore multiple economic structures. And we want to have interaction enabled between them. Citizens have to be able to transfer from one to the other because otherwise it's far too easy to come up with say a totalitarian state that nobody can really escape from because there are armed guards and so on. And we really wanted economies that are viable because they actually work for people instead of locking people in with guns and armor. That was the first sort of narrative constraint. So we decided to set this on, the initial concept note was something called Extremistan, which had basically five districts on a floating city. And the floating city setting was was selected for one specific reason. When you're on land, if you're unhappy with, if you're imagining a post-climate change future, there's a lot of potential for people to move away. And if they don't want to cooperate, they don't really have to because we are land mammals, we are quite well adapted to the land. However, on water, it's a different thing altogether. On water, resources are constrained. On water, cooperation matters. And we see this in international maritime law, for example, where ships are obliged to stop and help each other if one is putting up a distress call because we are not well adapted for water. So on water, it's a matter of survival. So putting these little cities together on a floating water body inherently constrains and makes humans work together. So it it came out of this concept note of five different districts which had some very basic stuff there was like incredibly basic libertarian economy there there was a very rome-ish sort of republican thing going on there was a vague attempt at a greek democracy and one thing that featured was a migrant train again this narrative construct that took the form of a train traveling between all these regions Allowing people to transfer from one to the other if they found it unsatisfactory to the lives that they believe they should be leading. So there was free transfer. None of these districts were inherently constraining or limiting people by just keeping them there. The first question was, maybe we should have more things holding people together. There has to be more reason. there has to be more infrastructure. And from that was born the idea of politically neutral construct that would constantly harvest energy, the harvest division that was exactly at the center of this floating sort of now ring-shaped set of city-states, sitting exactly at the center, parceling out equal amounts of energy to all these. And th- th- it made sense to set that up, because if you want to come in and imagine economies, and if you're primarily coming in at the, from that angle, you may not, in that initial run, want to think about, well, how is this economy going to be powered? Who is going to keep the lights on? Will that replicate the same structures that we see in the world today? Those questions might be answered later, but in order to give that narrative freedom to go, right, we have energy and we have people to do this with. Now let's explore an economy and we have the bare minimum of energy required to make most of these ideas work. So that narrative conceit was brought in. That's the Harvest Energy Division, which is famously politically neutral and a famous landmark for navigation in witness itself. And then the districts themselves start evolving.
0: I still have a question about uh, the migrant train and this concept of people freely moving from one district to another. Hypothetically, that's like migration policy 101, you know, like the main argument to have a migration policy is that what if there are too many people in one district? Have you taken at all this kind of question into account?
2: I just wanted to make the point that this is a kind of Malthusian argument. It, it doesn't really hold water. We've known this for over hundred years. There are never too many people for an economy. The more people you have, the more the production capacity of the economy is boosted. So in practice, this notion of absolute scarcity does not really work for a sufficiently complex ecosystem and, you know, general assumptions about natural capital.
1: And you could always assume that, of course, this being a floating city, land is limited and so on. But in reality, the central narrative conceit here is that people are self-selecting into these different states, into these different social contracts, because they believe that this is how the world should be. So there is no real incentive for... Many millions of people just suddenly transfer from one to the other. In fact, that's not really what happens, as Alberta pointed out, even in the real world. However, there is value to having an open borders policy because you actually then do prevent the construction of societies that rely on totalitarianism to function. Because those kinds of economies are easy to set up. A North Korea kind of economy is very
2: easy to set up. Put a bunch of people with guns. This reminds me of something a colleague recently told me, he is a sociologist and studies the LGBT community in Europe, especially migrants, notably in Germany. He found out that migrants to Germany, they seem to be migrating mostly in search of a greater tolerance rather than economic reasons, that was his initial assumption, so to speak. And so he did find out uh, in the real world a mechanism similar to the one that Yuda has imagined for witness, in which people choose the polity based on the worldview that the polity encodes that's more resonant to their own, rather than economic advantages per se. This also happens, but less than we might think, even when you look at the migration towards developed countries from developing countries, a lot of the time this is a last resort kind of endeavor. I mean, you're in Eritrea and you're looking at an indetermined duration military service or migrate, then of course you're going to migrate. But even then, most migration is between developing countries. You just move to the next one over, which is not as terrible as your own, but you don't necessarily try to go to Japan or to... Luxembourg because the GDP is the highest there. Absolutely.
1: And now you also have this constraint of these economies because when people have the ability to migrate from one to another, we can constantly ask ourselves if we have an economy that we plan to bring in here, we can first ask ourselves that question, but why would people want to live here? Which is important because we are trying to also create structures where people genuinely want to live. We are deliberately trying to avoid recreating the kind of dynasties and the kind of structures that we have in many countries in today's world where people live horrible lives. And we also don't want the kind of inequality expressed here. Now, for example, I'm from Sri Lanka. I can't travel to a lot of countries. There are only a handful of countries that will give me a visa on arrival. In fact, to come to Italy, (laughs) as I was complaining to Alberto. To visit Italy, I have to send in documents such as my birth certificate, my mother's birth certificate, all financial records of everything I own, bank statements for the last uh, six months. They had even listed death certificate in there somewhere. Employment contracts, sign letters from the employer saying that I have leave to actually travel, find copies of all the finances of the company that I'm working for. This is to get a visitor pass. This is not even to go live there, but this is to go see what it's like. And we really wanted to imagine a much fairer world where that fundamental question actually applies. If we are bringing in this economy, people can freely move. Why would they want to live here? So the pressure is now on us to imagine a city or a state where people can actually live and people want to live.
0: Yeah, this is uh, the novelty, I would say, like the strength of your idea in WITNESS. You put together certain things which are common things, resources, energy, and people. And you make, with the people, you make them empowered because they have agency. They have the agency to choose what kind of social contract they want, what kind of economy they want to live in, without having to renounce the fact of living together in that specific island. There's no one that is throwing them out to draw.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's not an episode of Survivor. So then when we had these five on the table, quite obviously, then we started looking at the economies and various criticisms like this economy is fundamentally similar to this. How about this interesting idea instead? So it grew from five to, I believe we now have six, seven in the works which are radically different compared to the original map that was proposed. And that came because of debate around this kind of question of why would people want to live here? This doesn't seem that good. This is kind of vanilla and this is boring and this is what we already have. Or why would people want to live here? This just seems horribly oppressive. So out of these questions, we started actually coming up with ideas that completely radical economies. And we wrote this in Now, this act of bringing in economies, as you've now been through these different districts, we wanted to also give them the political weight and the narrative reason for existence. Because in the real world, change does not come about magically. There is always a history of it. There's a history of agitation. There's a history of dissent. There's a history of changes and policy and all these things that come into it. So we designed this fictional history as these different districts and their social contracts started becoming more and more clear to us. Every time we had a certain amount of clarity on how the economy of a particular region would function, we would go, okay, how do we now plug that into this political history in a way that seems true to how we know humans behave? So, for example, the covenant and the assembly and Libria actually were born out of dissatisfaction with the very committee-led structures that were originally in place in witness. And these chunks broke away because one one bunch of people wanted a more anarchist state for themselves where they were not disenfranchised. They did not have to go through the whole credentialism that was involved in actually being a functional player in the governance of this region. Another group wanted free markets. They wanted the ability to prove themselves and the value of their lives by actually proving it on the market. And it is as close to a night watchman state as you can get, and that's Libria. So all of these things arose out of real world pushes for these different types of economies. We've often taken real world movements like the Punk movement, which has always been closely allied with the anarchist movement, we've taken that and used that as a narrative vehicle for weaving that into the political history. We've taken Hayek and his ideas of deregulation and woven that in into the fictional sort of history of Libria to show how dissent emerged against these systems and how these things evolved. So as a result, every one of these districts has a political history that plugs in, and as a result, Witness itself has a history that starts with, okay, very bureaucratic, UN-funded, floating city, goes along. A lot of people seem disenfranchised because instead of starting out with the perfect hand-selected group of population, it actually had to take on a lot of the workers and a lot of people who were hanging around when it was launched because it launched almost on the verge of of a climate event. So it had to take on a lot of people who were not supposed to be there in the first place. These people really didn't like that they were now in under a political structure. They can't swim out, they can't jump away, they can walk away, it's the ocean. They're now in a political structure where they have no control. So from that descent, you have what is called the zero-day fracture. And that's how everyone in Witness tight sort of uses dates now. It's like BC and AD, but the zero-day fracture is such a momentous event in Witness history that people change the time system to match that. That fracture is when the first major district broke away. Shortly afterwards, other districts started breaking away. And shortly afterwards, this international committee-forced multi-stakeholderism model began to shrink and make way for other economies as and when people proposed them and as and when public opinion came to support them.
0: I have a curiosity now. It's a bit out of uh, the topic that you were just discussing now, but it just came to my mind. Are there animals on witness? Sounds very much like a Noah Hark kind of metaphor for the 22nd century or something like this.
1: That is an excellent question. I know there are seagulls, but here's the very honest answer. I haven't thought about the ecology and we haven't thought about the zoology. Haven't, uh, and we know there's wheat crops, for example. We know that there are definitely are going to be seagulls because there were seagulls in one of the images that I did for Higgins, like one of those buildings. But thankfully, we... Now have people who are very interested in ecology and asking these exact questions and going, hang on a second, it looks like you kind of half-assed the biological thinking here. And we've gone, well, yes, actually, how about you do it? And they've thankfully responded and gone, yes, we want to do it. Another good example is the media ecosystem. You'll notice that in these witness entries, there's not much talk of how the media ecosystem works. And that's the nature of world building, because you build one piece at a time. And our focus is, was essentially on getting the economies up and running and real, and then the political histories, the topology, and looking at industry and production and how these things happen, and a loose part of the social contract. So now, thankfully, others are coming in to plug the gaps. We have someone who's gone, look, I'm interested in media. I've been doing this for a very long time. I want to think about how media works here. And there's potentially an interaction that will build up in the future because one of the people interested in ecology is thinking about a very meta state that is where citizens of this supposed meta state shirk notions of physical distance because they're communicating purely through cyberspace. They don't have to deal with meat space issues. And there is potentially going to be an interaction between these two. And maybe there's going to be a new district altogether being born. So we are now seeing that slowly happen.
0: It's fascinating because the more you speak about it, the more you have elements that makes this world real. But on the other hand, you can discover some of the flows. You know, the more you dig, it's typical of the world building. You say everyone can travel with the train and decide where to leave, but do they really know and how do they know about what is going on in the other district? That's the question of the media and the question of, is it like biased or like mediated? In each district, there is a certain narrative that is built about the other district or is there some common view or people can just uh, plug in any kind of uh, whatever, radio station or media or TV from the other district. And actually all this is accessible to everyone and therefore everyone can consume.
1: And, you know, how do districts trade with one another? This is something we faced in the assembly. Where it has this decaying currency that prevents you from hoarding, but also prevents you from being poor. So nobody can be poor for an extended period of time. Nobody can also hoard money. But then how does this trade with the sort of mass market economies going on next door in Libria. And we've looked at, for example, Freetown Christiana, which started out as this very hippie anarchist colony that is now facing increasing commercialization due to tourism, basically. And we've now gone and changed parts of of the assembly at the edges are now changing. And they're not necessarily a pure vision of one model or the other. And it's these edges where interesting interactions happen. So what do those edges look like? As we start trying and asking ourselves more and more questions, the world becomes more real because we're interrogating it, we're poking holes in it, and where we know the holes are, we can patch it up.
0: Alberto, you have been like the chief economist of this world project, if we can uh, give you such a title and if you would accept it. He is
1: actually fictionalized. Alberto exists as a fictional character there. He's gender swapped, but I want to point out that there is a poet economist <laughs> who runs around describing the economies
0: of these places. You see, so I was not too far from, uh, from the reality of the things. <laughs> as master political, economical, uh, whatever you want to call yourself, narrator of this. Have you thought about this district uh, As this is all science fiction and science fiction, there is also a tendency to speak about the future as well, also within your own timeline. I don't know if it's too early to discuss about that, but how much you have conceptualized the future timeline definitely it's not a static world the one that you are building up so personally I would be curious to know if some of those districts would eventually merge or like if at some point there will be something that is hybrid between the different economies can some of those economies spill over to other districts even if they keep their own identities and for example separate economies but uh, still spread geographically across the different districts. I'm asking this question because I have an intellectual curiosity, especially linked to our current planet situation where it might be possible that at some point we would have some sort of different economic systems living together, but not just being isolated into a certain geographical space, but being global. You could have different economic systems which are global economic systems because they are pervasive, they have value chains which span across the globe, but they are separated from each other. Is that an intellectual construct that probably pushes a little bit too far in the future of witness, but uh, I would be very curious to know what you think about something like that.
2: Okay, so witness really is a thing that exists in four dimensions. Now we are considering the whole of a time dimension, so it doesn't have a future per se, just different values of a t. This is not completely resolved, but I think what we are trying to do is we are trying to depict a sort of metastable state so initially there was Witness the UN project and, you know, Danton was in charge and institutions had been designed from the top. Then we had a moment of chaos and readjustment and messiness and districts broke out. And now we are in this now of current witnesspedia entries. We are in a state of relative quiet. These districts have moved out and have asserted themselves and have started to cooperate and to compete a bit, to specialize. So we are in a period in which, of course, things are changing, but not so much that we can't say something about the structure of Witness as a whole. And why am I interested in this? Well, I am interested in this because remember why we are doing this in the first place. Okay, we have different motivations. The two of you are authors, and I can hear the storyteller in your in your question, Giuseppe. Well, how does it all end? You know, wow, of course. That's the main question for you guys. Me, I'm sitting in the real world at the beginning of a new story, which is the twin transformations, the twin transitions. Now we are supposed to change, we are supposed to become something else. And I'm trying to imagine, what is this something else? What is it going to look like? And I don't think it will look like one thing. I think it will look like many things. So in witness, what we have is we are following different threads that are diverging, but at the same time, they are fairly harmonious. And again, in my lifetime, I have seen this in Europe. I have lived in a Europe that was two economic systems. There was an Iron Curtain. Bisecting Europe in two, and you've had whatever kind of state socialism, whatever you want to call it, on one side, and you had advanced capitalism on the other side. Trade was restricted, but not impeded completely. Migration was restricted, but not impeded completely. These were possible. Cultural exchange was definitely happening. Common institutions bring them on. CERN, Euratom, you name it. And so these two economic systems coexisted in some sense. They worked together. And that was the world I grew up in. I would personally like to see more economic creativity from here on in the real world so that we can explore different avenues. Not necessarily because one avenue will win it all and now everybody's got to be a solar punk or an anarcho-libertarian or a new cooperativist, whatever. But because maybe there is space for all of this. And if there were space for all of this with the world equivalent of Judas' migrant train on witness, then we would all be more free as individuals. We would be able to choose our polity and our way of engaging with the economy in a way that suits us.
0: I think this is an amazing thought. I pretty much subscribe to your wish in terms of saying we need diversity and we need people to choose. My extra layer of thinking, and that's probably more from my uh, geographical studies background, what you describe the situation during the Cold War, it's still very territorially bound. You had certain countries which had territorial continuity, you had a nation state or whatever you want to call it, and this was contained, you know, and you had several patches of this across the world, but there was like territorial continuity. What I am suspecting we are heading through in the real world, but it's just an hypothesis, is that we are actually going towards multiplication of the system We've been hearing a lot about decoupling recently, especially considering what is going on with China and the United States. And this makes me think that maybe the new way, the 21st or 22nd century of the version of things that you were experimenting back in the 80s, you know, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, will be something even more complicated in the sense that maybe the physical geographical continuity will not be needed. And then we might have different systems, different economic systems and different political systems coexisting in the same space. Like your concept of choosing your polity, but you still need to take the train and go to the other district, you know. What if you can choose your own polity from your room, just like you would change a subscription to a different provider for anything like you do now? You are either you subscribe to Netflix or to Amazon Prime or both. What happens if this kind of subscription system that we are seeing developing in many services would leak into subscribing to an economic system or the others or to a polity, but still being able to live in the same place?
1: See, that would be very interesting to see because you'd also have to contend with physical social networks. And we often see that like effects of homophily are incredibly powerful. And this is something I study with like access, social network data and so on. And you often see that people hold morals and social contract values that are the result of the physical networks that they're born into and that they are functioning. So I'm a little bit skeptical on whether we can have like perfect virtual subscription. However, I agree that if such a thing were there, more people would be far freer to experiment. A while ago, I was thinking about how would we make witness more realist? And I was thinking, well, if we wanted to, we could anchor it on a landmass. You know, we could set it in a slightly climate-changed Europe, where everybody has agreed to come together. They've set up the city to deliberately test these different economic systems and to see if you know these things will work out. And that's one way of thinking it. Maybe at some point a fork of witness may be necessary. But it's important to sort of understand that witness is a lab and it doesn't necessarily have to be like the future is not probably going to turn out to be floating cities on a completely climate ravaged world. Floating cities are theoretically still living, mean, practically are still a bit iffy. Theoretically cool, practically a bit eh. But witness is intended as a lab. And the reason the ocean is around it is to impose a constraint, a condition that these people cannot leave and they have to work together and they have to settle their differences as amicably as possible. So what would they do then? So think of it as real people put into laboratory conditions and each of them have now to live under these systems and see how they actually interact. Alberto described it even better. He described it as I think a dictionary of possible economic systems so that if you want to imagine if you are you know in the real world you want to reach out and imagine what the future might be like and what realish people and what kind of realish political history might be built around such a thing flip the page go right this thing i want to see this thing how might that work oh great they're going to have massive agricultural self-sustainability problems (laughs) and here's potentially how they got around that it's a land
0: the other thing that comes to my mind now since we are towards the end of the world mini series the other things that comes to my mind is dictionary on one hand and the other literary reference uh, which is uh, italo calvino and the invisible cities witness sounds and looks like like the invisible cities to a certain extent and i don't know if you, yes. if you i yes. mean you said yes
1: <laughs> i mean i'm a huge calvino fan i like love- Absolutely love his work and from my like selfish perspective, I'm thinking of you see that a lot of science fiction and fantasy authors don't think about the economics of their world and that's not as a result of they don't want to but often you see even something like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, arguably one of the most important fantasy series ever created, there's no real economics there, it's just gold silver and that's it. From an author's perspective, since you write and I write as well, from a very selfish perspective, this would be a fantastic way of, for authors to go, I want to construct a world that has this kind of society that I imagine in my head. And now you can flip to this and go what kind of economy would be required to maintain and sustain that kind of social contract that I have imagined. You might have dragons, you might have cyberpunks running through the streets, but now you actually have this set of thinking that has been interrogated, that has been beaten on forums and people going, what the hell is this? And it's actually survived those
0: tests. Indeed. And when we, we started our conversation, you say that there are two kinds of world builders, you know, people that build the world as it goes on the way during the story and those world builders who are planning everything beforehand. And you immediately put yourself in that camp of the people that likes to go deep into the word, go deep into the iceberg. All this traveling that we did with the others in each district, it was like traveling inside that iceberg and seeing the different facets of that space, of that, of that huge mountain. You can see just the tip of it, but everything is important, everything is functional. And that's like more from the storytelling perspective. But then coming back to Alberto also to conclude, more from the economist perspective, from the political lab perspective, from the using of science fiction more as a tool for real world application, this is an extremely rich experimentation that is going on it's keeping on and it's continuing.
2: The reason for that, I believe, is that uh, if you start tweaking with the economy at a sufficiently deep level, then you hit on to things like value theory, like what is it that we found valuable, and eventually you end up in considerations about human nature. And let's never forget that economics was born from a moral philosophy, and that Adam Smith's other magnum opus that he considered his real magnum opus was the theory of moral sentiments. So at the end of the day, if you want a different economy, you really need to ask yourself these two questions. What it is that makes people tick? And how can people cooperate effectively? And so you will end up in institution design. This is inevitable and it has plenty of, by the way, echo in economic literature, especially in the nobler economic literature, which is not simply, again, tweaking of the the neoclassical marginalist model, but uh, people like Kirschman I'm reading Hirschman, and in Development Economics, this is super clear, in which uh, really they have to ask uh, themselves, uh, is it better that people are guided by interest or passions? Uh, Because passions, you know, they sound good, but maybe, you know, remember, passions started all these holy wars and uh, jihads and stuff like that. Interest is a bit more, you know, the sweetness of commerce, and so maybe there's less war when people are more self-interested, and they have all these kind of different ideas. Hirschman himself was advising for all his life to evaluate development projects, so this is a very concrete field analysis kind of work that he was doing by the way for the World Bank. He was saying you guys are bad at spotting the unattended benefits benefits are coming up where you're not looking for them. And he thought that one of the main benefits that an initiative could have is to build institutions. That was his main north star, so to speak. So, of course, you end up in political innovation. Now, I'm not particularly good at that, but I I completely recognize the the need and the connection is very strong. In fact, uh, we've actually
1: ended up in philosophy even on this. Like the question of our knowledge systems are broken and how do we make them more inclusive led us to ethnology. Uh, the question of what would an honor code based around solid economic thinking and incredibly robust risk analysis led us to risk Bushido. So we've, we've actually now started coming up with these philosophical systems that kind of supplement and interact with and modify agent behavior, I would say, in this kind of world that we've constructed. Mm-hmm.
0: We could go on for hours and hours uh, and even uh, our short exploration of witness in those uh, few episodes of this season of uh, Europa Rama wouldn't be enough to cover all the questions uh, because as you say, uh, then you explore the economy, but then you touch on philosophy and then you touch on value systems and then you touch on human nature. That's what makes it an incredible adventure, the one, the one that you have been starting. And that is definitely not finishing, because by definition, you are creating something that uh, everyone can go and modify or use. Your wish is that there are creative people over there that maybe they are going to use it for their script writing for TV series or a movie. They can be uh, creating a game out of it, or they can write a story, write a novel but also for social scientists and economists and political wonks uh, go and experiment and trying to test things. Of course, we could go on we could make many more series about witness because it's as infinite as you can invent new things and new elements and these kinds of things. But unfortunately we will have to defer that to the witnesspedia, the wiki that is set up and we'll encourage all our listeners to just go there and play with witness, enjoy, embrace it, be part of it and basically help building this world and help spreading it around because that's what it is meant for. I don't know if you would like to have some final, final words before we close the episode and the season.
1: Yeah. Come help us build this thing. Cause there's a lot of thinking we haven't done yet and we'd love to be able to do it. And more, the more lenses we have looking at witness, the more robust it becomes and the more people poking and prodding at the margins. When it heals, it, it heals stronger and it becomes better.
0: Thank you, Yuda Alberto. I had a lot of fun thanks for having
2: us and i really hope that this will induce some of the listeners to actually come play and there are several ways that you can play with us one is like join me and the other ethnographers and try and build the economies and the societies of this world but the other thing that you can do is use the world and just kind of set your own novel or short story or video game or whatever in the world of witness which is completely open source
0: and this brings to the end of this season in the show notes there are as usual the links to the witness wiki where you can join the community and this incredible experiment of co-creation you will also find the link to the membership page of are we europe to become part of the most unconventional club out there and help build a new media for a changing continent thanks so much judah thanks so much alberto i was very happy to share this journey through witness together Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Are We Europe? A border-breaking media trying to bridge the gaps in European culture and identity. You can become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at 4 euros per month. Just go to areweeurope.com slash member and help Are We Europe build a new media for a changing continent. Thank you